The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Up next, we're talking about the bonanza of investment banking fees in the Middle East and Chinese job market woes. Welcome back to The Newsroom, the podcast from Reuters Breaking Views, where columnists from around the world talk about the big stories of the week. I'm your host, Amy Donlan, coming to you from London. Investment banks are finding rich bounty in the desert. HSBC, Citigroup and Bank of America are just a few big names that are bolstering their teams in the Middle East to take advantage of a flurry of IPOs and M&A activity. The soaring price of oil has enriched the region's big investors like Saudi Arabia's Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman's $500 billion public investment fund. Banks are also likely to continue this gulf scramble as the US and European IPO markets have only raised $21 billion since January. That's against a total of $219 billion in the same period in 2021. Meanwhile, China is dealing with soaring unemployment. Nearly one-fifth of the 16- to 24-year-olds in the world's second-largest economy are not working. The problem is particularly acute in the services sector of cinemas and restaurants, which have been the target of regulatory crackdowns. And with many regions still in lockdown, the situation is likely to get worse. First, I chat to Karen Kwok in London about Western Investment Bank's activity in the Gulf. Next, Yao Chen speaks to Pete Sweeney in Hong Kong about the Chinese jobs crisis. Western investment bankers are finding a hospitable home in the Middle East. Here to talk to me about it is Karen Kwok. Hello, Karen. Hi, how are you today? Good, good. And very nice to chat to you. I really enjoyed your piece this week and very topical, obviously, because there seems to be so much activity going on in the Middle East. And I think our readers definitely were interested in that. So tell us what is going on in the Middle East? What what kind of deal activity are we seeing? IPOs, because obviously it's it's pretty quiet everywhere else. Yes, so uh, it's really interesting. Uh, suddenly you see all these activities popping up in the Middle East. So uh, first of all, it's about the um, it's on the IPO front. Gulf government, a lot of them, UAE and both Saudi Arabia, they both want to uh, privatize their assets. And that kind of prompts a lot of IPO as they selling shares of those companies. And you can see like, for example, like uh, utility companies and there are a couple of more that coming up as well, uh, like uh, pizza companies and like th- there's quite a lot of activities going on basically because of that. Yeah. And, and tell us, Karen, what was the sort of pre-pandemic situation in the Gulf? What was what was what was it like for investment banks that were trying to do business there? So during the uh, pre-pandemic situation uh, beforehand, I would say in before, as in like in 2019, there's only like one IPO going on, which is the most famous one, the Saudi Aramco. So uh, it seems to be a pretty huge deal that kind of with the hope of bringing in more uh, Middle East IPOs. But that back then, it was a couple of banks working with it, City, HSBC, JP Morgan and Goldman Sachs. Unfortunately, like uh, it comes with really low fees, uh, investment banking fees for these banks. And a very difficult sovereign client and they um the structure of the ipo is also not very pleasant back then because they sell um shares limited shares to international investors 
So so now we've got this this sort of midi boom, I guess, right in, in the Middle East. Tell us about that. You've got some really nice data in your piece kind of showing how many IPOs we've seen and how much that has increased since last year. Yeah, so it's very interesting because this year we see like a global stock market sell offs in uh, the Western market in the US and Europe. Uh, the Middle East is like stood out, really. So according to Logic data, 21 companies in the Middle East have listed so far and they have already raised $12 billion. And relatively like in the US and Europe IPOs together, they have only raised $21 billion. So you can see the scale and the amount of uh, money raised is uh, quite significant in the Middle East. Absolutely. And I mean, the other thing I suppose is, is sort of M&A, which I think a lot of people are really expecting from this area because, you know, oil prices are so high. There's a lot of cash floating around. And what have we kind of seen sort of in the M&A space? Well, in the M&A, it's uh, again, is uh, getting more interesting and the price could be even bigger. So basically, as you say, like the soaring oil prices basically provide a lot of capital to uh, these countries. So one of them is uh, Saudi Arabia's $600 billion, nearly $600 billion public investment fund. So they, they have a great firepower. And at the same time, as you said, the stock market sell of have provide have um, pushed down the valuation of many of these in, uh, Western companies' share price. So for PIF, it's a really good opportunities, and that's why they bought like minority stakes in gaming companies like Japan's Nintendo and Embracer in Sweden, which is at the same time as for them to diversify diversify away from uh, oil economy. And at the same time, you can see like golf company, like uh, cash with a lot of strong balance sheet. They want to diversify their revenue by buying sticks in other companies. So the most recent one is the UAE tel telco group called EN. They recently spent like $4.4 billion on a 10% stick in Vodafone in the UK. Wow. So who stands to gain, Karen? Who? What are the banks that have sort of really set themselves up well for this sort of bonanza? Well, basically those that have already built relationship in the past few years. So JP Morgan and Goldman Sachs, they, they have been here, they, they have been in Saudi Arabia and uh, UAE for a very long time. They all worked on Aramco and so that's why both of them top the M&A investment banking fee charts this year, according to Refinitiv. And, and you can see that uh, HSBC and City is also gaining grounds in the IPO front, as especially, this is especially significant for City because they were withdrawn from Saudi Arabia after the 9-11 and have, and has since then improved their relationship. And especially last year that their chief executive, Jane Fraser, has made a visit to Saudi Arabia to rebuild the relationship. Absolutely. So I think you can tell from sort of like meetings like that, that there is obviously banks are putting a huge amount of importance on this growing market. And I think looking to the West and, you know, America and Europe, obviously, where things are that bit quieter, it'll become all the more important. So really interesting, Karen. And, and thanks so much for your time today. Thank you, Amy. Hello, I'm Pete Sweeney. I'm here in Hong Kong and I'm chatting with our China columnist Chen Yawen about China's jobs problem. Yawen, we've seen 
a very worrying statistic recently that a lot of people are looking at. The unemployment rate of 16 to 24-year-old cohort, which is kind of the, the muscle of, of China's workforce, is nearly a fifth of these, these people are out of, out of work right now, um, which I think is, is a record. We have to qualify that, of course, Chinese unemployment statistics in the past have been unreliable, but even so, things look pretty bad. Um, can you just talk us through how bad they are? So, like you mentioned, this group that includes fresh college graduates, um, the unemployment rate hit a record, and we're probably we're likely gonna see it worsen in the next few months because uh, about 11 million college graduates are getting out of the door this month. So so far, that is not even factored in in the record in the record high, you know, unemployment rate for this group yet. And nationwide, we're seeing um, unemployment rate close to a record as well at around 6%. And I think private estimates have put this at much worse numbers. There, there are a few of them now because of either self-censorship or pressure that economists felt, especially after a 2020 incident when a, a Chinese economist was, was basically pulled off his leadership post after he said that about 70 million jobs were um, lost during the, um, during the pandemic in early 2020. But I've seen some other estimates has put like maybe this year's um, loss at even 92 million by a Peking University professor. He was really worried about how it's much worse than, you know, um, what we're seeing in early 2020. And there's a lot at play here, of course. The government, in addition to the, the pandemic, you know, which was a shock, and then there's this, the re-shock, as it were, the second pandemic shock of these lockdowns, these Draconian lockdowns that lockdown like Shanghai, a city of 26 million people, contributes about 4% of GDP, had people stuck inside their houses for over two months, I believe. Um, right. Lots of other cities in the rest of the country are, are uh, implementing similar policies in an attempt to try and hold the contagion rate down to zero. Obviously, this is just crushing you know, parts of the service sector that re- require people to leave their houses. So, you know, restaurants. Um, movie theaters, so on and so forth, just getting absolutely hammered. In addition to that, we have the legacy of these crackdowns that we've written about a lot, the the crackdown on the technology companies, um, especially on the consumer internet companies like Alibaba, Tencent, you know, the delivery companies, the ride-sharing companies. And then even more seriously, probably if less sexy for investors, has been the, the push to deleverage the real estate sector, which is a major contributor, a bigger contributor to growth overall than, than technology, consumer internet by, by a long shot, I think. Altogether, these are all hitting at the same time, which is going to be difficult to address. What so far is the government doing? Clearly, they're, they're, they're sensitive to the issue if they're trying to keep people from talking about unemployment rates. Um, what are they doing about it right now? What's, what's the plan? First of all, you're seeing a lot more talks about, you know, we're, we're trying to stimulate economic growth and there are signs that they're easing on the crackdowns on technology and they're doing some property easing as well, encouraging local governments to stimulate sales on the margins though. Um, you know, there, there's, I think at the core of the crackdowns, for example, for property developers to abide by, you know, like debt, red lines, those are have not been scrapped at all. On the monetary front, they've, I think they've lowered some of the key uh, interest rates, like the five-year um, uh, lending rate, but it's also on the margins. It's not the the amount that we saw during the last easing in 2015 when China's property market was uh, crashing down. 
and on the fiscal front, I think that's that's where the government is hoping that they can really encourage more government spending to um, to to increase growth, right? But I think what a lot of people have overlooked is that this year's fiscal policy is already much more proactive than last year. Um, Nomura, I think, is about 16% more proactive in terms of uh, total investment. But there is as big as a six, $6 trillion yen funding gap for that to fill. So I think the hope that China is going to have a lot more extra fiscal firepower is a bit over-optimistic. We, we saw the survey that showed um, the majority of Chinese college students now want to work for the government. Everybody wanted to be Jack Ma, the Alibaba founder. Now they want to work for the government, which kind of begs the question, um, can they? How much how, can can the government just do a, a jobs program? And uh, there, there are signs that they're trying on the margins again, like you saw the Yunnan government is giving some annual subsidies to people who choose to go work in the countryside. But overall, I don't think the state sector, the public sector is is able to really digest all that labor force because for one, that would be a huge reversal from you know the, the SOE reforms we saw in, in, in the 90s when Premier Zhurongji laid off all these people from the bloated SOE sector. Um, right now, I think per World Bank estimate, the state sector maybe employs up to 16% of people. It's much smaller than in the past, but I still think that's a significant number. But um, yeah, I don't I don't think they are able to digest all that. Like some of the maybe employment could go into the military. They could expand the civil servant um, workforce as well, even though that that is really in short supply. For example, last year, two million people applied to work in civil servant jobs, um, and only thirty thousand were hired, basically. So I, I think that that compares to, you know, eleven a eleven million college graduate market this year. That is just tiny. Well, and even if they do, I mean, so another thing to watch is like even if the unemployment rate stays high, what happens to wages? What happens to disposable incomes? You know, you talk about Zhu Rongzi, you know, back in two thousand when China was getting ready to join the WTO. I mean, huge unemployment problem. Mass amounts of underskilled people who've been working in state enterprises, reading the newspaper all day or whatever. Um, but China joined the WTO. There's this explosion in the private sector hiring exports from joining, opening up to world trade, and that got sorted out. 2008, we had the shock from the global financial crisis. Demand for Chinese exports collapsed. You know, China responded by printing money, you know, infrastructure spending, leveraging up. Um, but they can't do those things twice. I mean, most of those things have been used up. Uh, so it makes sense that the government is conservative with interest rates, especially in a new inflationary environment, you know, with their concerns about debt. Like, they're not unreasonable to be reticent about monetary easing. The question is, what can they do? To, to the extent that these are self-inflicted pain, the extent that, like, the COVID zero policy you know, and these crackdowns on real estate and technology can be relaxed, you could find some growth there. But I mean, do you think that's, do you see signs of that being any dramatic easing in those areas underway? Not really. I think everybody is looking for signs that we're, you know, we're fully reopening and there's no, uh, there's no, you know, going back into lockdown again. But I, I think that's really difficult given how some of the state media editorials now are talking about, you know, this being this zero COVID policy being a longer term broad policy that should be looked at in, in terms of, you know, it's it's good for the longer term good. So I find it very difficult to <laughs> conclude that this is going to be fade out soon. 
Yeah, well, finally, I mean, I guess that the one thing that's been keeping the boat afloat, well, I mean, that has been doing a lot of work keeping the boat afloat has been exports. China has explicitly targeted a policy of, of trying to exploit export markets to kind of pad domestic weakness. A lot of people are expecting the United States to be in recession next year, if not earlier, with these huge interest rate hikes. There's going to be weaker demand for Chinese products abroad. And if they don't do something to bolster domestic demand, it will be quite bad. But um, thanks for talking to me, Alan. Thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in. The podcast was produced by Oliver Taslik in London and Thomas Shum in Hong Kong. Subscribe to The Views Room and our sister podcast, The Exchange, on Acast, Megaphone, or wherever you like to listen. Check out our latest views on these stories and many others at breakingviews.com and on Twitter, where our handle is at breakingviews.